Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a great holiday. Ours was great and super busy. Now that the holidays are over, we'll be back to a regular schedule. I know it got kind of wonky there. The holidays got the best of me, but I promise we're back. I won't leave you hanging anymore. Before we start our episode today, I wanted to let you all know that a family reached out to me from Bonham, Texas. Their daughter, Danny, has been missing since December 6th. They are doing everything in their power to try to bring her home. There's a Facebook page set up with more information titled Bring Danny C. Home. If you or anyone you know has any information about Danny, please contact the Bonham Police Department at 903-583-2141. Hopefully her family can get some answers and bring her home safely. I first heard about Tom Brown when I listened to the Texas Monthly podcast, Tom Brown's Body. Honestly, I was not thinking of covering the story because Texas Monthly had done such a thorough job. I thought, what else could I possibly add to the story? Then I got an email from you guys requesting that I look into the case of Tom Brown. So I started off by re-listening to the Tom Brown's Body podcast first. It had been a while since I had listened to it. And guess what? I was just as sucked in the this time listening as I had been the first time. But this time I was not listening as a fan. I was listening as a podcaster and someone who was curious about the facts and the points that weren't adding up. It turns out there were so many things that I had questions about and wanted to point out to see if others shared my thoughts as well. I wondered, why had no one else asked these questions? It turns out that they had, I just hadn't made it to the right sources yet. So after I finished re-listening, I read the Attorney General's report that they released after their investigation was completed. And I knew that I did want to do an episode myself. There were too many inconsistencies with Tom's story. The main thing that I took away from this case and from the Texas Monthly podcast was that I don't really think anyone involved in this case was being 100% truthful. Law enforcement, the family, the private investigator. And when I say law enforcement, I mean local law enforcement. I think the FBI, the Texas Rangers, and the Attorney General's office, I think they were being honest. But I think the local people involved, for whatever reason, weren't, whether it was to save their own butts or to cover up being inadequate at their jobs, maybe family scandal, I don't know. But I just feel like there are so many things that people aren't being truthful about. So after you listen to this part today, I would love to hear your thoughts and theories about what you think might've happened to Tom and who might be responsible. Now we're not gonna get through all of the information today. This is part one, sorry everybody. But like I've said before, there's just too much and I don't wanna rush it. Tom Brown was a well-liked popular senior in high school in the small town of Canadian, Texas. He was the class president, he played football, and he was part of the drama department. He liked to read, and by all accounts, he got along with everyone at school. He also really liked WWE Raw and even talked about becoming a professional wrestler one day himself. So combining the athletics from the football field and the acting from the drama department, there you go. People even said Tom was quirky and he had a great personality. 
Now, Canadian is a small town of around 3,000 people, about an hour and a half north of Amarillo. It's the kind of small town where up until Tom went missing was described as a place where nothing ever really happens. On the evening of November 23rd, 2016, the night before Thanksgiving, Tom left his house around 6 p.m. to go meet some friends and go riding around. That was a common thing for high schoolers to do in Canadian. They would meet at the middle school, park, pile into one car, and ride around and visit and listen to music. Tom met his friends, Caleb King and Michael Castletime. They cruised around town in Tom's red Dodge Durango on a route that friends called Tom's Loop because it was the circuit through town that Tom liked to drive. The three boys stopped and had dinner at a local restaurant and then headed back to the middle school parking lot around 8 p.m. to meet Christian Webb, Tom's best friend. She had graduated the year before and was home for Thanksgiving break. In fact, it was the first time she had been home since she left for college. So Tom was eager to see her, as were Michael and Caleb also. Michael Castletine told the group that he was going to head home for the evening and got into his own car and drove away. Caleb and Tom climbed into Christian's car and the trio continued their driving and talking and playing music. Christian got tired of driving, so they drove over to what the locals call the walking bridge. It is an old wagon bridge that is now part of a hike and bike trail. The, free, the three friends leisurely walked across the bridge while they talked. Christian took a picture of Tom while they were standing there. She said that he seemed like he was in a good mood. The night was cold. It was windy and in the upper 30s. Tom had on blue jeans, a t-shirt, thin pullover sweater, and tennis shoes. The three friends drove back to the middle school parking lot between 11 and 11.15 p.m. Caleb got into his car and drove home. Christian and Tom hung around a while longer and continued to visit. They made plans for Tom to come over to her house the next day after they had Thanksgiving with their families. They also talked about Tom coming to visit her in the spring at Oklahoma State University. Tom was trying to decide where he was going to college, and he thought Oklahoma State might be a good spot for him. Then, the two said goodnight, Tom got into his Durango, and drove away. Christian assumed that Tom was headed home. Tom's curfew was midnight, so when midnight had come and gone, his mom, Penny Meek, got worried. It wasn't like Tom to be late. Usually, if he was running behind, he would call her text to let her know that he would be home shortly. But when she didn't hear from him, she became worried. She texted and called Tom, but she got no response from him. Tom's older brother, Tucker, was home from college also for Thanksgiving break. He called and texted Tom, but also got no response. Tucker's friend Taylor was also at the meet home watching movies with the family, so he thought maybe he should call and text Tom, but Taylor also got no response. Penny said that when she first started calling and texting Tom, it showed that the texts were being received and that his phone would ring. But a little before 12.30, Tom's phone started going straight to voicemail, as if it had been turned off. This also surprised Penny because Tom always had his phone. And in fact, it's something that's talked about all the time. Tom's friends, his family would say he was fastidious about his phone. He always had it and he always liked for it to be charged. It was very important to him. At 1230, Penny woke up her husband, Chris Meek, Tom's stepfather, and let him know that Tom had not made it home and that she and Tucker and his friend Taylor were going out to look for Tom. Penny got into her Suburban, and Tucker and Taylor got into Tucker's Forerunner and started driving around Canadian looking for Tom. 
Penny drove around town, and Tucker and Taylor drove around the outskirts of town checking back roads. Tucker thought maybe Tom had been in a wreck and was not able to call for help. He said that he just kept thinking they were going to come across Tom's car, either get him, bring him home, or call an ambulance and get him the medical help he needed. I want to stop for a minute and say that I find it odd that there is no mention anywhere of what Chris Meek, Tom's stepfather, was doing during this entire time. Did he wait at home in case Tom got back so that he could notify the others that Tom had made it home safely? Maybe. But as the evening's events unfold, you're going to see that Chris is unaccounted for pretty much most of that whole night, which to me seems odd. Penny and Chris have been married for quite some time. You would think that a loving stepfather would be right in the middle of trying to help find his missing stepson. But it's just one of the oddities of this case. And we're going to talk about it more later. But I wanted to point it out right now. So after about an hour of searching, Tucker dropped his friend Taylor off at his own house. Here's another oddity. Taylor lived 25 miles away from the Meeks' home but his truck was still parked at their house. So why would Tucker go so far out of his way to drive his friend Taylor home instead of just turning around, driving back to his own house and dropping him off at his truck that was parked right there? It seems like a lot of extra time wasted that could be looking for Tom. I don't know. We'll get back to that too, but just wanted to point it out. Tucker then drove around for another hour, continuing to look for Tom. Meanwhile, Penny went back home and started calling the friends that Tom had spent his evening with. She called Caleb King first. Now, Caleb was home and in bed asleep. His mother woke him up and asked him if she knew, if he knew, sorry, where Tom was. Caleb was surprised that Tom had not made it home. It was very unlike his friend to not only be late for curfew, he usually was actually early. Like I said earlier, he was very conscientious about time. So Caleb then called Michael Castletine and Christian Webb to ask them if they knew where Tom could be or if they'd seen him. Now, everyone was at home in bed asleep, and they were all surprised because they just assumed Tom was going home too. So the three friends got into their cars to go out looking for Tom as well. Michael Castletine's mother went with him to help in the search. All three teenagers at that point said that they were worried, but not overly concerned for Tom because nothing ever happened in Canadian. They thought that maybe he'd gotten a flat tire or was stuck in the ditch somewhere. They figured somebody would find him. They would fix the flat, pull him out of the ditch, and get him home. They drove all over town. They went to all the regular places that kids their age would go to hang out. They drove to the rodeo arena and the football stadium. They went downtown and even out to Lake Marvin where there were picnic and campsites near Canadian's Reservoir. No sign of Tom anywhere. Around 2.30 a.m. that morning, Penny called the Hemp Hill County Sheriff's Office in Canadian to report Tom missing. Canadian does not have their own police department, so you have to go through the Sheriff's Department. The deputy on duty, Pine Gregory, rode around town looking for signs of Tom or the Durango before he went to the family's home. Now, Pine Gregory arrived at their house at 4 a.m. He pulled up in the driveway to speak to Tom's family. 
and they met Deputy Gregory out in the yard when he pulled up. Now remember, it's cold in the 30s and dark, but instead of asking the deputy to come on in, they all stand in the yard for about 15 minutes before they go anywhere. Now, I'm not saying that they need to invite Pine Gregory into the house and have a cup of coffee, but even if they just let him in the entryway of their home, that would have been a nicer place to get a rundown of what had happened so far that night instead of sitting out in the cold. Now, maybe they were just stressed and not thinking and they just wanted to rush out and greet him and get things moving as fast as possible. That is a big possibility because I know I would be a basket case if I couldn't find one of my kids. But again, another oddity that we're going to come back to. The family suggested that maybe Tom had gone to see his ex-girlfriend, Sage Pennington. They said that they had heard she was home from college. So Tucker volunteered to go with the deputy and show him where Sage lived. Sage lived about eight miles outside of town. So Tucker and Pine Gregory drove out to her house, but Tom was not there either. Pine Gregory and Tucker continued to drive around and look for Tom for quite a while longer. Then Pine told Tucker that his shift was about to be over and that Sheriff Nathan Lewis would be in soon to take over the search. By 7.30 Thanksgiving morning, Tom was still missing and no one had any idea of where he might be. Penny and Chris Meek went to the sheriff's office to talk with Sheriff Nathan Lewis. Lewis had just become the sheriff of Hemphill County in September. And remember, it's only November, so he's barely been on the job. Also, Nathan Lewis was only 32 years old, and he had never worked a missing persons case. Most of his law enforcement career had been spent doing drug busts. So this was his first time being in charge of an investigation and the very first missing persons case he'd ever been on. Now, Penny and Nathan Lewis knew each other, but it wasn't because Canadian was a small town and they went to the same church. Penny did not like Sheriff Nathan Lewis. In fact, she had told her friends not to vote for him and filed a complaint against him when he was still sheriff's deputy in a neighboring county. According to Tom, Nathan Lewis had harassed him and his friends one night when Nathan Lewis was driving through town. Now, Tom told his mother, Penny, that they were trying to see if their friend was at home. Their friend's family owned the local movie theater and they lived above it. He said that was all he and his friends were doing when Sheriff Nathan Lewis saw them outside the theater. Tom told Penny that Sheriff Lewis pulled up, yelled at all of them, cursed at them, and then made Tom get into his car and questioned him further about what the kids were really doing outside the theater. He said after a few minutes of Tom saying that nothing was going on, Sheriff Lewis finally let him out of the car and told them to go home. Now, Sheriff Lewis said that he did see Tom and a few of his friends hanging around outside the local theater after it was closed. But he says that he did, and he says that he did stop. But he only told the boys to get on home that they didn't have any business hanging around outside the movie theater. He said he never cursed at the teenagers and that Tom had made it all up. Sheriff Lewis even said that later, and you can hear all this in the Texas Monthly podcast, Tom Brown's Body. 
I think it's it's really interesting to hear it in, in Nathan Lewis's words himself. So now Sheriff Lewis, like I said, he said that later he saw Tom at a Rotary Club meeting in town and Tom came over and apologized to him for lying to his mother about what really happened that night. Sheriff Lewis said that he shook Tom's hand and told him that it was in the past and there were no hard feelings. I don't believe this story. I think Nathan Lewis made this story about the Rotary Club up to make things look better between him and Tom. I mean, by all accounts, Tom was a really great kid, but most teenagers don't walk up to law enforcement or other adults they don't really know at a public meeting and say, hey, I'm so sorry that I lied to my mom about what you did. I also don't think that Tom probably told the whole truth about what happened at the theater to his mother either. I think he probably exaggerated a little bit about the way Sheriff Lewis acted. It's possible that Tom and his friends were just acting dumb and horsing around outside of the theater, being loud, and did deserve a chewing out. I don't think that the kids were doing anything wrong, but I think, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle between Tom and Sheriff Lewis about what really happened. Now, not long after Penny and Chris Meek left the sheriff's office, Nathan Lewis got a call that Tom's Durango had been found. Christian Webb's father, Trey, owns a helicopter sales and service company. He is also an experienced helicopter pilot. So he and Christian had started searching earlier that morning, flying over town looking for any signs of Tom. The red Durango was parked under some trees on a dirt road near the water treatment plant just outside of town. It was an odd spot for the car to be parked since the gate to that road was usually closed and locked. It wasn't a well-known road and most people in town didn't even know that it existed. It also was not a place that Tom and his friends went to. Friends and family were hopeful that Tom was in the car and that they were going to get some answers, but he wasn't there. It looked as if the Durango had been abandoned. Sheriff Lewis and a deputy walked around the outside of the car, looking at the exterior first. There was a faint shoe print and a urine mark right outside the driver's side door. So it looked as if someone had stepped out of the car and gone to the bathroom. The door to the Durango was unlocked and by all accounts and from the pictures I've seen too, which I will post for you guys, sounds like a typical high school boy's car. Inside the car, they found some cans of smokeless tobacco, two pairs of football cleats, towels, jumper cables, a pillow, and a clown costume. The clown costume was from a part Tom played in a drama production for his school. There were also to-go cups and other random junk in the car. It was pretty messy. So I'll post the pictures on Instagram and on Facebook so you guys can take a look too. But it's a mess. There was no signs of Tom's wallet, his keys, or his cell phone, or his mother's debit card that he had borrowed the day before to fill up his car. They did, however, find Michael Castletine's debit card that had fallen between the two seats and a 25 caliber shell casing found in the floorboard of the car. The only blood in the car was a very small amount on the inside of the driver's side door near the handle, and it had already dried, so it wasn't fresh. News quickly spread throughout the community that Tom's Durango had been found, but no Tom. Residents postponed their Thanksgivings and came out to help the family search the area where the Durango was found. They searched on foot, horseback, and four-wheeler. Christian Webb and her father continued to search by helicopter, 
and her brother also joined in on the search with a second helicopter to hopefully locate Tom. So that's the thing. It's not like the sheriff, the sheriff's office blew Penny off when she reported Tom missing. They sent a deputy out. They looked that evening when the car was located. The sheriff's department came out. They looked in the vehicle and they start a search right away. They, they called in game wardens, local game wardens to bring in their dogs to try to track Tom, but the dogs weren't able to find a scent. There was no sign of him anywhere. I do think though, however, unfortunately, the sheriff's office was just really inexperienced. Tom and Tucker's father, Kelly Brown, also arrived to aid in the search. Now you don't hear a lot about him in the podcast, but it's obvious that Kelly Brown is very involved in his son's lives when you read more about him. I just don't think he wanted to be in the big middle of all the hoopla. And if you listen to the podcast, in my opinion, there's a lot of hoopla involved. So the community rallied around the family to offer help and encouragement. Everybody was hoping they were going to bring Tom home. Later that day, Sheriff Lewis asked Penny if the family owned a 25 caliber pistol. She told him they did not. He told her that he was going to return the car to her. Now, Penny was surprised by this. The sheriff's office hadn't even had the car for 24 hours. And rightfully so, she questioned Sheriff Lewis and asked if he'd done everything they needed to to process the car thoroughly. He said, he told Penny that they had gotten everything that they could from the car and he was going to bring it home. So the sheriff's department towed the car back to the Meeks house and then Tucker decided to do his own search of the car, but he didn't find anything useful either. The next day though, Sheriff Lewis called Penny and said that he'd like to come and pick the car back up and search it again. He told her that he wanted to make sure that he hadn't missed anything. I really think that he second guessed himself because he did not do a thorough job of searching it. And so he's trying to make up for his oopsie. The superintendent of Canadian schools came by the house to see how Penny was doing. He asked her if anyone had thought to check Tom's school computer. He said maybe if he was using it to get online, they could trace Tom that way. In all of the searching, no one had thought to look for Tom's backpack. He usually kept the backpack in the backseat of his car, loaded with his school-issued computer and his books. But the backpack was not in the car, and it was not in his room at home. Several attempts were made to trace the computer, but they were all unsuccessful. The search for Tom intensified over the next few days. Sheriff Lewis brought in bloodhounds from the state prison in Amarillo. They tracked Tom's scent for three quarters of a mile, but lost the scent at a small slough. A slough is just a marshy, swampy area that leads into a bigger body of water. Sheriff Lewis set up a grid search of a two-mile area surrounding the water treatment plant. He also arranged for a mounted search and rescue team from nearby Randall County to come in too. They started their search at the Canadian River and rode their horses east along the river bottom all the way to Lake Marvin. The searchers were unable to find anything that might be helpful in locating Tom. All the search efforts weren't turning up anything to help police figure out where Tom had gone. It didn't seem plausible that he would have parked his car at the water treatment plant, grabbed his backpack, which would have been really heavy with his books and computer, his phone and keys, and started walking. For one thing, remember, it was really cold that night in the 30s. And Tom wasn't dressed to be out in the weather. 
Another reason that the people who knew him best doubted that he decided to walk somewhere was simple. Friends and family all said that Tom would not have walked. He was not outdoorsy, and he liked his creature comforts. The thought of Tom walking anywhere when he had a perfectly good vehicle didn't make sense to those who knew him best. Also, the area around the water treatment plant was not conducive for a walk. It was heavily wooded with high grass and marshy ground. If you walked through the brush, you would eventually get to the Canadian River. So that's the thing. All the land around it was river bottom land. But the Canadian River itself also would not have been easy to cross on foot. The river is at least thigh deep. And remember, it's the middle of the night. So it's dark. If you have never spent any time out in the country in the middle of nowhere, you're mostly familiar with being in town where you've got house lights, street lights, stoplights, car lights. You don't really realize how dark it is until you're out in the middle of nowhere. So unless Tom had brought along flashlights or something, he wouldn't have really been able to see where he was going. And we already know this didn't seem like Tom's bag to go for a, a trek through the woods. Now, Sheriff Lewis and his deputies started reviewing video footage from businesses around town, hoping that they would get a glimpse of Tom or the Durango. And they did see Tom's Durango on the video footage that they found, but the videos themselves raised more questions than gave answers. Tom's Durango can be seen on several cameras throughout town that night, but his route didn't make any sense. Why was he driving around town with a dead cell phone instead of just going home? And on top of that, how would he manage to avoid everyone who was looking for him? It almost seemed like he was dodging people on purpose. But why would he be doing that? Now, here's another thing. Tom himself is never actually seen on any of the video footage. There was a ping on his mother's debit card at Franks Oil and Gas at the pump. But Tom himself is not seen there either. It's just his vehicle. Now, Franks, there's no gas. There's no actual convenience store. It's just pumps. You pull up, you gas up, you go. So it's not like there were even any witnesses who might would have seen him. So, again, just his vehicle. So that raised questions for not only investigators, but also from the community as well. Was Tom really driving his Durango? Or could it possibly have been someone else? Now, I'm going to read you a brief timeline of Tom's vehicle activity for the evening. And I'm saying vehicle activity since Tom himself was never really seen. And when I was reading and listening to the activity, it got really confusing. So I wanted to put it in sequential order for you so you could hear just how it does not. It's just odd. At 11.26 p.m., Tom's Dodge Durango is seen headed towards town. Between 11.28 p.m. and 11.36 p.m., the last credit card transaction made by Tom at Fonks Oil and Gas is registered. Then at 12.23 a.m., Tom's iPhone loses power, but the phone dies. It's not turned off. There's some discrepancies there of people saying this and that, but we'll talk, we'll go into that more later, but it was analyzed. It is, the phone died. At 1.10 a.m., the Durango can be seen headed in the direction of Tom's house. But then just one minute later, at 1.11 a.m., the Durango is seen headed back in the opposite direction 
away from Tom's house. The Durango then isn't seen for several hours until 5.28 a.m. when it is seen again headed in the direction of Tom's house, but then just two minutes later at 5.30 a.m., the Durango is seen headed back into town away from Tom's house. Why all the back and forth? Where was he or whoever it was going? Did Tom actually go home or at least drive by his house? It's just so weird. Why all the weird random trips? And like I said earlier, if Tom really is or whoever is doing all of this random driving around, how in the world did law enforcement, friends, and family manage to miss him every single time? In fact, in some of the video footage, the Durango is seen driving straight through the middle of town and not 10 minutes later, his brother Tucker's forerunner is seen going the exact same route. So they're all around him. What is going on? Then at 5.56 a.m. early on Thanksgiving morning, the Dodge Durango is seen driving into the water treatment plant, parking, and then the lights on the car go out. It is completely dark and it does not appear that anyone gets in or out of the vehicle. No one sees the Durango again until 8.30 a.m. that morning when it is found at the water treatment facility without Tom. Two days after Thanksgiving on November 26th, Penny and Chris went back to the Hemphill County Sheriff's Office to sit down and talk some more. This time, they were interviewed by Chief Deputy Brent Clapp and a Department of Public Safety State Trooper sat in on the conversation as well. Chris was the first to be interviewed. He told Clapp and the trooper that Penny was Tom's main caregiver and that he was just an observer. He said that he had no idea why Tom disappeared. Again, what a strange comment. Just an observer in your stepson's life? I know it sounds like I'm picking on Chris Meek, but he just seems so detached from the situation. And I know that everyone handles stressful situations differently, but to comment that you're just an observer just sounds like you don't have much to do with your stepson at all. Next, it was Penny's turn. She started off by telling Clapp and the trooper about Tom's personality. She said that he was kind and funny and that he would stick up for others who were being picked on. She also told them that she had been in contact with some of Tom's teachers and that he was doing well in school. She said that they all said he seemed to be happy when they saw him and Penny said that she hadn't noticed any changes in Tom's behavior either. Then the officers moved on and asked Penny what she thought might have happened to Tom. Her reaction surprised both of them. She told them that her first thought was suicide. Now, I'm going to stop our story for just a minute because I want you all to remember that Penny was the first person to bring up Tom committing suicide. And here's why I want you to remember this. It later becomes a big bone of contention with Penny that law enforcement investigated the suicide angle, but she was the one with the initial thought that he might've committed suicide. So, and don't you think that it's their job and their duty to make sure that they're thorough? So just remember that. Now, like I said, 
Both officers were surprised by Penny's answer. The state trooper asked her why she thought of suicide first. Penny told him that it ran in her family and that her father had committed suicide by shooting himself in 1998 after suffering from a long bout with depression. Tom himself had recently learned the truth about how his grandfather had passed away. Until just recently, he had thought that his grandfather had had a heart attack. The officers also asked her how she thought he would have done it, and she said by the choking game. They asked her why she thought of the choking game, and she said that Tom wasn't a gun person, and she had heard about it randomly, and that she knew kids did it, but then she said she didn't really know much about the choking game. Penny then went on to tell them that she had already checked the house for missing guns and meds, but everything had been accounted for. Penny also told them that Tom had a lot on his plate being a senior. She said he was trying to figure out where he wanted to go to school. She said a few weeks before that he had gone missing, he had broken up with his longtime girlfriend, Sage Pennington, who was already away at college. He was pretty sure he didn't want to go to the same college as Sage, and he had told everyone that they broke up because it was too hard being in a long-distance relationship. Tom had also decided to quit the football team after he had been demoted to second string. He told the coach that he didn't want to stand around on the sidelines and waste his time all season. So, he was going to focus on his other favorite school activity, which was being involved with the drama department. Penny said that Tom hadn't seemed overly upset by any of these things, but maybe they could have been a factor. But then she backtracked and said that he seemed fine and no one had reported any changes in his behavior, so she wasn't really sure about that. Penny also then said that maybe he had run off to a professional wrestling school. There were some in the area, and he had talked about wanting to attend one. He had even asked if she would pay for it, but she told him no, she would not pay for wrestling school, only for college. But I mean, he had a vehicle with a full tank of gas. Why would he run away? Why not just get in your car and go? Then she said she thought she didn't really feel like he had left the county, and that he was probably just hiding somewhere, and she didn't know when he was going to come out. But she thought he probably would. But again, she didn't give a reason for why he would be hiding. Law enforcement continued to talk with friends and family to see if they could glean any more information about where Tom might be. When they spoke to Tom's ex-girlfriend, Sage, she said that they did break up, but there were no bad feelings between them. She and Tom were still friends, and they texted back and forth on a regular basis. She said Tom was really sweet and kind and everyone liked him, and that she had even written him a letter to tell him what a good boyfriend that he had been. There was one thing that Sage shared with the officers that was a surprise to them. She said that a few months earlier, Tom had confided in her that he liked to wear men's diapers. Sage said that he was very obviously embarrassed about it and that she tried to make him feel better, but also did tell him that maybe he should seek some counseling to work through the reason on why he liked to do it, because if it bothered him, then he should get some help for it. She said she didn't know if any of their other friends knew about it or if it was just her. Sage also told the investigators that Tom had texted her and said that he was sad and he felt like a loser. But when she tried to follow up with him about it, his phone had already been turned off. So obviously, Tom was struggling with something. And it sounds like he was working up the nerve to talk about it with someone he trusted. 
But for whatever reason, whatever ended up happening to Tom, he never got the chance to work things through. So after learning this, Sheriff Lewis set up another meeting with Penny to ask her if she knew about Tom wearing diapers. She brought two friends with her to the meeting. When Sheriff Lewis asked her about it, Penny was incensed by the question. She said she had no idea what he was talking about and wanted to know where he'd even heard that. So here we go, y'all. Another inconsistency with Penny. She denies to law enforcement of having any knowledge that Tom wore diapers. But later on, she tells Skip Hollinsworth from Texas Monthly in the Tom Brown's Body podcast that when Tom was in junior high school, they had caught him wearing his little cousin's diapers. And that they had told him it wasn't okay and that he had stopped and he'd never done that again. Well, here's the thing. Tom was a senior in high school. He knew that wearing diapers was not the norm with his peers. He knew that his family didn't approve of it. And it was obvious that he really was embarrassed by it, according to Sage Pennington. Here's the other thing. It doesn't sound like Tom had any medical reason for wearing the diapers. It was just something he preferred to do. I feel like there was a lot going on behind the scenes with Tom that Penny would rather just ignore and act like it's not happening. So I wonder what else was going on with Tom. And who knows, maybe she really was clueless about all of it. It doesn't sound like he felt like he could talk to his mother about things. Sounds like he was confiding in Sage Pennington because he trusted her and he felt comfortable sharing with her. But I don't think that he felt like he could confide in Penny. And I think Penny was so wrapped up in preserving the perfect image of Tom that she wasn't really truthful with law enforcement. Or like I said, maybe she really didn't know. But Tom could have hidden the whole diaper thing from her anyway. You don't have to be 18 or 21 to go buy diapers. You can walk in the store and buy them at any age. And he had a driver's license. He could have driven anywhere to go pick them up. He didn't need her help. And he could have put them under his bed or kept them in his car. So for her to just be like, oh, he never did that again. That's really kind of ridiculous. So Penny told all of her friends that Sheriff Lewis was just trying to trash Tom and they didn't have enough law enforcement experience to do a proper investigation. I don't know. I don't think he had a lot of experience, but at this point, I think he's done the best he can. Things are going to change, but we're going to stop right there for today. I would love to hear what you think so far. What are your thoughts about Tom and his family dynamics? If you're already familiar with this case, what do you think happened to Tom? I'd love to hear your thoughts and theories. So you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod or on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You can always send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast.com. And please remember if you like what you're here, subscribe and leave a five star review. When you subscribe and leave a good review, it helps other people find the podcast. Also, 
Tell a friend if you like what you're hearing. Share it with people. I will see you all next week with the second part of our story. Bye.